Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greg Olier who I follow on Twitter, G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R, tweeted just an absolutely brilliant tweet. I mean, you know, it, it, it popped up over on DU. I saw it on Twitter. It's getting around, as they say. And it's just brilliant. He, he, he says, uh, it, it's done as a quote, right? Like as if quoting somebody. And then there's a, at the very end is the punchline saying who said it, right? Okay, so here it is. The jerk who broke into our house with help from our adversaries, stole our money, got us sick with plague that killed grandma, caged children, poisoned the environment, gaslighted us, subjected us to abuse, and held us hostage for four years should not be investigated. End of quote. Said no one ever. <laughs> but it really does, you know, summarize... We have had four years of basically a, a mob boss, a crime boss, running the White House, demanding loyalty from people the way mob bosses do, trashing people who, who dare to speak up or have an independent thought the way mob bosses do, having, when he introduces his cabinet and brings in the press, having them go person to person and each one of them talk about how wonderful uh, he is the way mob bosses do. His kids are behaving like the children of mob bosses, entitled, rich, arrogant. Uh, it, it, it's, we have had a, an organized crime figure in the White House for four years. He has, we know, taken over $100 million of taxpayer dollars and deposited them into his properties by constantly visiting his own properties and requiring the Secret Service to go along with him to rent rooms, to rent golf court, call, uh, carts, to pay three, you know, three bucks a glass for a, wa- for a glass of tap water. I mean, you know, it's just, it's obscene. He had the General Services Administration refuse to let the FBI move out to Virginia and build a brand new building that would have been, you know, larger and, and accommodate their needs because their old building in D.C., they had just hugely grown out of it. It's across the street from the Trump Hotel. They were going to tear that building down and sell that lot. And Marriott and Hilton were interested in bidding on it. 
And so, you know, M- Emily Murphy, I think her name is, over at the General Services Administration, the woman who up until, what, yesterday or the day before said, yeah, you guys can't have any transition money. I'm blocking it. Uh, she's making 190 grand a year to do this. Uh, she's the one who's, who said, uh, no, the FBI, they're, they're good where they are. They don't need to move to Virginia. We'll just renovate the building. It's all good. Don't worry. And then when she went before Congress, uh, she was asked explicitly, did you do this? Because Donald Trump didn't want competition for his hotel. Are you doing this because you're, you know, you're a, a, a Trump humper? And she was like, oh, no, no, you know, Trump has nothing to do with this. And now we know from people inside the GSA and from witnesses who were there that actually she did do it to protect Donald Trump's financial interests. He's a mob boss. He's been he's been taking money from foreign oligarchs all over the world, you know, and laundering it through real estate. I mean, who else? There's very few people in America. I mean, literally, this is very seriously. This is. You know, this is something that pops up in a news story every now and again. And every time I see it, I'm like, oh, my God, why is this not the headline? I realize it was, you know, back in the day, you know, 15 years ago when it first started coming out. But you cannot find a real estate developer in America where if you walk in to buy a a condo or a property say it's got a, an appraised value of $40 million, and you walk in with $50 million in $100 bills in cash, they will take your money. They won't do it. There are laws against that. There are laws that are very rarely enforced, but there are laws against that. And it turns out that both internal banking security people and people at the Treasury Department have flagged a number of these transactions where Trump, over the years, where Trump has been laundering cash for criminal figures in countries that name, whose names end with Stan or, you know, uh, uh, or Russian or Ukrainian oligarchs or, or even mob figures, you know, organized crime figures from Africa and, and, and Asia. Uh, where they have flagged these transactions and said, hey, there's something going on here. Here's a, here's a $20 million cash transaction. There's, you know, there's something not right about that. And in every case, Trump has been able to pull strings and get the investigations dropped or ignored. In every case. Now, my personal opinion is his luck is running out. I hope that's true. But, you know, we have had a mob boss running our country. And what happens when you have a mob boss running your country? Well, last week, another 778,000 Americans lost their jobs and filed for unemployment. Every single one of those people is a tragedy. People lost their jobs. They lost their income. They will soon lose their homes. They will find it hard to find things to eat. Here in Portland, we're seeing a dramatic increase in homelessness at the same time that the, the, the mayor, Ted Wheeler, is trying to open homeless shelters and take down some of these encampments. I mean, we've got little cities growing around here of people living in tents. And, you know, particularly when they butt up against neighborhoods, it gets pretty freaky because you start seeing crazy crime and stuff. Our next door neighbor, you know, a homeless person was in her backyard using the hose to take a shower, basically. We need facilities. We need, I mean, these, you know, these are human beings. But, you know, since the Reagan era, we have stopped taxing rich people to pay for, for services for everybody else. 
And we have seen this explosion in homelessness. And now, you know, another 778,000 people in one week, in one friggin' week, we've got 20 million people in this country drawing unemployment. And about 10 million of them are going to lose it the week after Christmas if Congress doesn't reauthorize money. This is what you get when you've got a mob boss running your country. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about, I mean, he may, he may be upset with me for saying this on the radio, but by and large, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He just cares about how much money he can make and how much of it he can shovel to his kids, you know, giving Ivanka, you know, close to a million dollars a year in consulting fees so that he can write it off his taxes, which is illegal. But hey, he's a mob boss. And meanwhile, uh, over at uh, the uh, university, the Washington University, George Washington University in St. Louis at their uh, Olin Business School, they've got one of the better um, COVID forecasting models. It has been very, very solid throughout the entire epidemic or pandemic here in the United States, the epidemic. And they are forecasting that between now and the time that Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 20th, which is what, about seven weeks from now, eight weeks from now, I think seven weeks from now. In that period of time, the number of people with COVID in the United States is going to double. This is, I mean, I'm hearing it from my kids who work in the hospital. I'm hearing it from callers. I'm hearing it from people all over the place that our hospitals are straining. They're starting to buckle and it's fixing to double. I mean, Donald Trump is not just burning the country down. He's not just, you know, ruining the government. He's not just you know, putting blindfolds over our spy planes as he tears them up. He's also actually encouraging Americans to die. This morning on MSNBC, there was a, a nurse on talking about the, the large number of patients who come in with COVID and make their way to the ICU. They're, they're dying, literally. A large percentage of them are going to die. And gasping, insisting I don't have COVID. There's no such thing. It's, a, it's, just a, it's just a flu, you know? This can't be. I've got to have something. It must be lung cancer. Please, you know, check me out for something else because it couldn't be COVID. You know, the president told me it's, it's nothing to worry about. Hey, give me that drug Donald Trump got. Just let me pop out of here. And then they die. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And that's what happens when you have, a, when you have an organized crime figure who becomes president of the United States because he tried a publicity stunt to make more money. This is Megan Hatcher Mays, a lawyer and director of democracy policy for indivisible.org. Megan's Twitter handle is important, Megan, or indivisible team. <laughs> there is a, a great piece over on their website about building a progressive America. Megan, welcome to the program. I did a long Twitter thing this morning and a rant in the previous hour about all the ways that Republicans <laughs> have just destroyed America and how hard we had to climb back up and how we really need something like, you know, FDR's New Deal or LBJ's Great Society. We need mm -hmm. a bold vision, not, you know, some, you know, Democratic version of warmed over neoliberalism. I'm curious, A, your thoughts on that, and B, where you all are going and doing. Yeah, so whew, the first step was getting Trump out of office, so we did that. That was exciting, even though he didn't. He was yeah. living in denial for a little while after the loss, up until 
current day. So that's good. The next step, though, is really addressing kind of what brought us Trump in the first place. And, you know, just because he's out of office doesn't mean we now stop and say, oh, phew, that's over with. We can all take a nap, go back to brunch, those sorts of things. That's not happening. Because a healthy democracy would never have elected Trump to the presidency in the first place. So we really need to go back and look, how was this country designed in such a way to give so much power to guys like Trump? And what can we do to finally create a democracy that actually works for everybody. So that's going to be the big fight going forward. It's going to be challenging depending on what happens in Georgia, but that's the fight kind of for over the next year, two years, and probably four years is to really start to look at what we can do to kind of undercut the influence of super powerful businessmen types like Donald Trump and really start to give power back to the people, probably, you know, for the first time ever in the history of this country. So that's what we're aiming to do at Indivisible over the next year. Tip my hat to you all. I mean, I've been flogging, I mean, as in promoting, you know, mentioning frequently Indivisible as a place to go if you want to be an activist in this election and they can help you out with everything from get out the vote to phone calls to whatever. And y'all did just yeoman's work. I mean, it was just just extraordinary, extraordinary work. And, and yes, we, we beat the yeah. orange monster. Um, but what do you say <laughs> to those people? I mean, you know, in my in my lengthy Twitter thread this morning, I mentioned this, that the big job that we have now is to move the Biden administration. You know, mm-hmm. a couple of people tweeted back saying, number one, oh, it's it's useless. Give it up. Joe Manchin's already said he won't even vote for overturning the filibuster. So even if we get both those Georgia seats, it won't matter. And somebody else responded saying, what, are you trying to take down, you know, the few Democrats those that, you know, that we have in some of these red districts? And, you know, you're you're going to hurt the party if you keep pushing progressive stuff. My response to that is when you poll the American people on the policies that they want, you find more than 70 percent support right across the board, including majority support among Republicans for increasing the minimum wage, for a national health care system that covers everybody with, you know, health care as a right, for doing away with student debt, for making college available to everybody in the United States for rebuilding our infrastructure, for reducing our dependence on fossil fuels and replacing it with green energy. I mean, every single one of these steps that are the core of the progressive agenda that is portrayed as so radical, oh my God, it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's going to be the end of America, actually are supported by the majority of Americans and the majority of Republicans. So I don't get where this is coming from. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad you brought up the minimum wage. We have very good data on that, right, which is that Biden lost Florida, but the minimum wage increase that was on the ballot won by a lot. We should be owning the economic justice lane. Republicans have nothing to offer when it comes to better wages, fair treatment at work. None of that stuff is in the Republican platform or on their agenda. If it were, we would have passed a second COVID relief package. And, you know, we haven't done that. Republicans haven't done that. But the problem seems to be not that Democrats' ideas are bad, it's that people don't trust Democrats. Like, the message is good, but the messengers leave a lot to be desired. And, you know, you have people as diverse as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Doug Jones from Alabama, and Beto O'Rourke all saying the same thing, which is that Democrats are not doing enough to really commit to communities over the course of many years, that they kind of just show up for presidential elections and hope for the best. That's not how you win elections. It's not about whether or not Democrats or socialists or whether deep on the police lost us house seats. They really didn't. It's because Democrats aren't owning the lanes that we should be owning. They're not making the case to voters 
And instead, they're succumbing to bad faith Republican attacks, which is to say Republicans are going to call anything Democrats want to do socialism, regardless of what it is. And we have no response to that because people don't trust the messengers conveying the message. And I think you see that in a place like Florida, where minimum wage increase, hugely popular. Supposedly, that's a big progressive idea. But Joe Biden himself is somehow not pulling the state. And it's because this party has a lot of work to do to build up trust between themselves and voters. Yeah, I get that. And and there's a certain schizophrenia because we do have, I mean, let's just admit it, there are some Democratic elected officials who are taking big money from big corporations and basically doing Republican. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is Joe Lieberman took $1.2 million from the insurance industry and then killed the public option. I mean, it's just like, you know, yeah. that was, you know, a decade ago. But, you know, it's that, that's happening all the time. Yeah. At the risk of sounding like I think my own universe is the most important in the world, which I don't, but nonetheless, I would add one thing to your equation, and that is that every single day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, on over 1,500 radio stations in America, there are right-wing talk show hosts promoting the idea that Democrats can't be trusted, that Democrats are evil, Mm -hmm. that the only way to save America is through neoliberalism, and they are building relationships. People think talk radio is about information. It's not. It's about relationships between the host and the listeners, and between the listeners and each other. Communities form around radio. Completely. And we have nothing like this on the progressive side. Our show is on a couple of dozen major commercial radio stations in big cities. We've got a few. We're on Pacifica stations all over the country. We're on Free Speech TV. We're on Sirius XM, which is huge. But mm-hmm. there are huge chunks of America where in, if you don't have a satellite radio receiver, like virtually the entire South, you cannot get even one progressive voice Whereas in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm willing to bet there's three different conservatives competing with each other like there are here in Portland right now. What do we do about that? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I think that you're completely right, that it's all about the relationship building, whether that happens through media or if that happens through in-person contacts with other people. For whatever reason, Democrats are not cutting through these relationships that more conservative or even independent voters are making with sort of more extremist voices. And so I think well, what I was suggesting, you know, Clear Channel was up for sale two years ago for one point one billion dollars mm-hmm. out of bankruptcy. Yeah. And I wrote an op ed to Tom Steyer saying, why don't you buy the damn thing and, and put progressive radio on <laughs> 900 radio stations? I'm serious. Yeah. We just yeah. have 30 seconds. Yeah, but totally. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I realize that's not pure politics, but I think that we need to be talking about infrastructure. The, the Republicans have had this infrastructure for 20 years. Yeah, and I think that what we're seeing now, particularly with Facebook and some of other social media companies, is that people are in a sort of a feedback loop where they're just reading things and trusting things that validate what they already believed instead of reading things critically to think, yeah, I might change my mind about that. Yeah, I'm with you. Megan Hatcher Mays is the uh, lawyer and director of democracy policy over at indivisible.org. And if you want to be a political activist, and you should, go to indivisible.org and sign up. Important Megan on Twitter. Megan, thank you so much. Great talking with you. Thanks, Tom. Great talking with you, too. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Andrew in Riverside, California. Hey, Andrew, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, that last conversation is exactly what I called to talk about. First of all, I think, while I'm no fan of the Republican Party, I think the Democrats also are answering more to the donor class, the rich and powerful, the corporations, and less to we the people. So that's about, that explains, about half of the Democratic Party, I think, fits into that category. Yeah. Yeah, but I think they're 100% of the Republicans. <laughs> but, but I think, but yeah, and, and the power structure. I mean, that's Chuck Schumer, right? And and they're they're dominating the policy. I have a way to address it. One way. See, the Republicans okay. are thinking long range, and Democrats aren't. Here's one way we can do it. Besides radio stations, your idea is great. We can also do what they do in Venezuela. They have neighborhood assemblies that basically run their society. We can do that here easily. With no funding, we can all do that in our own neighborhoods. We can form neighborhood assemblies. And then we can take back our government from the bottom up by banding together and then networking each association with each other. We can take back our city council, our school boards, our planning commissions, work our way up to our, uh, our county boards and then our state government and work our way up. And then we can also at the same time put pressure on folks like Joe Biden and our Congress to do things like I heard uh, Dean Baker interviewed saying, just by executive order, the president can eliminate student debt, number one. Number two, can bring down drug prices, pharmaceutical prices, by taking away the patents that the pharmaceutical companies have and forcing them to charge only what their cost is for producing drugs, which is usually a buck or two per dose instead of hundreds or thousand dollars. You can also um, increase the minimum wage for all federal workers up to 15 or even a living wage, 20, 25 bucks an hour. And they're not doing it because they're responding to the donor class. Andrew, I love your idea. I just want to make sure you know that it's already been implemented. It was put into place in the early 1800s by the Democratic Republican Party and still lives to this day at every precinct, not the county, not the city level, not the county level, but the little tiny precinct. Every precinct in America has a local Democratic Party and you can become a precinct committee chair and the precinct committee chairs in the in the in the city or the county or the state or, you know, all of the above together actually pick the primary candidates. So if you get a majority of progressive precinct committee chairs, virtually your entire field of candidates are going to be progressives. They are quite literally the most powerful people in politics in aggregate. Individually, you know, it's somewhat limited. John, also in Santa Fe, New Mexico, listening to AM 1260 KTRC. Hey, John, what's up? I want to ask you a question about Tom Perez. I mean, where is he? Mm -hmm. We, we've had all this going on. We're hearing from the RNC president. And maybe I don't understand what Tom Perez's job is, or maybe he doesn't. I saw him on TV last is. night. 
Oh, is that right? That's the first time in a while, though, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, you maybe know. maybe a week or so. I mean, he comes on this show with some regularity. We could invite him back on, but uh, I, I mean, I don't. I don't get your concern. I mean, the Republicans have been in the news because they're having basically a massive food fight with each other. Well, my, my concern, yeah, what's I guess the old is, saying, you know, when your enemy is hurting themselves, <laughs> don't stop them. Right. Let them go. Yeah. We should be happy about the election results up to now. That's for sure. And um, but it, it could have been better. And I feel like, like I say, maybe I don't know what his job is. Maybe it's just fundraising or something. But as far as a strate- a yeah, he's basically goes, an administrator. You know, the guy who the guy uh-huh. who has basically final say on who's going to run for the Senate is Chuck Schumer. Uh-huh. And I think he's made some huge uh-huh. mistakes, okay. frankly. Yeah. OK, um, well, I agree and, with you, you there. Know, over in the House, the, you know, the candidates for the House, that's a little more diffuse. It's not it's not quite as, you know, top down. I'm not sure that Nancy Pelosi has anything close to the power that Chuck Schumer does. You've got the Democratic, you know, the D, Triple C and the RSC, whatever it is. So there's a bunch of different bodies. But and I'd like to see more progressive candidates out there. But it's happening. It's growing. And the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party is growing and our message is growing. And frankly, if our votes would just get counted, what we're finding is that Republican districts have very few votes thrown out or disqualified or challenged, particularly rural Republican areas. They're virtually 100 percent of all the votes get counted. Democratic areas, you know, we saw in this election, it looks like between five and seven million votes got thrown out and almost all oh, of Florida for sure. Yeah. Areas. yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, votes being challenged, you know, et cetera. We've got to get this under control because I think that, you know, Democratic voters are turning up in huge numbers. And it's just that all of our votes aren't being counted because they're being challenged by Republicans saying, oh, that signature doesn't look right to me, or I don't, you know, or, or yeah, that, you know, yeah. what, or, or, you know, they give them the crappy voting machines, or that, you know, you have to stand right. in line for five hours or whatever. The incredible line, you yeah. Do something about it. Yeah, there you go. John, thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for listening to KTRC. This is a quote from H.R. Haldeman, Richard Nixon's chief of staff. So this is not a new thing for the Republican Party. You know, Trump and his birtherism and his naked racism and blocking immigration from countries that are largely black and preventing immigrants. You know, all, you know, it's just been racism for four years. That's been his main appeal. And, and I, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that probably 90% of the, of the various right-wing groups who show up with their Confederate flags and their AR-15s are there because, you know, for the racism. So this is what H.R. Haldeman said. He was Nixon's chief of staff. He said, Nixon's advisors recognized, again, this is the chief of staff to the president of the United States, Richard Nixon. This was after, after they left office. He says, Nixon's advisors recognized that they could not appeal directly to voters on issues of white supremacy or racism. But Nixon emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key for us was to devise a system that recognized this while not appearing to. And with the aid of Harry Dent and South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond, who had switched to the Republican Party in 1964, Nixon ran his 1968 campaign on states' rights and law and order. States' rights, law and order. These are both euphemisms for white supremacy, white power, black suppression period. Full stop. This is why Trump was out there tweeting, you know, alternating between tweeting uh, law and order, law and order, law and order. 
uh, suburban women, suburban women, you know, they're, they're, the low-income housing is coming into your suburbs. Oh, my God, I'm going to stop it. Don't worry. It was all about saying to white people, we're going we're gonna to keep the black people out. Don't worry. We've all heard the Lee Atwater, you know, thing. I'm not even going to quote it. It's just so disgusting. And then Paul Weyrich. Now, back, I don't know, 15 years ago, I discovered, I didn't discover it. It was, it was published in one of the magazines. I, I forget which one, Mother Jones or, or The Nation. Um, uh, one of those reporters had found this Paul Weyrich clip and it was in this article and it appeared and it kind of went away and for a couple of years, nobody even knew it was there. And I tracked, I, I saw that in the magazine and got the clip and started putting it on the air. And I played it on the air like once a week for a couple of years. I played it for Bernie over and over again. It was Paul Weyrich, you know, where he said, you know, he was talking about these goo-goo politicians, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by the majority of voters and they never have been since the foundation of the Republic. In fact, uh, quite candidly, our leverage in the elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. See, I've got it memorized. I've played it so many times. Well, here's something else that Paul Weyrich said. And this was in 1990. This was 10 years later. He said, let's remember that the religious right did not come together in response to the Roe v. Wade decision. What got us going as a political movement, keep in mind, this is the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation. This was the guy who helped run the Reagan campaign in 1980, explaining what brought the Republican Party back into power after the Nixon disaster. And it was in part their association with the religious right. Paul Weyrich himself was a big, big person in the religious right. And he says the religious right did not come together in response to the Roe decision, as most people think. What actually got us going as a political movement was the attempt on the part of the Internal Revenue Service to rescind the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of its racially discriminatory policies. This is what animated the religious right. Racism. It wasn't abortion. They picked up abortion long after the fact. I mean, you know, in 1979, Ronald Reagan was proud and bragging about the fact that he had signed a law as governor of California that increased access to, to abortion in that state. George Herbert Walker Bush in 1979 was on the, on the board of advisors of Planned Parenthood. They were both pro-choice. That all flipped in 1980 when, when uh, you know, uh, several people in the religious right thought, hey, here's an issue we can ride. It's working well for the Catholics. Let's jump on this. But the thing that had brought them together a decade before that was when the Internal Revenue Service said to Bob Jones University, an all-white Christian college, you may not racially discriminate and maintain your tax-exempt status. And this was an explosion in the late 1960s, early 1970s. I forget the exact year, but it was after the Civil Rights Act was passed. And Bob Jones University 
ultimately, I don't, I don't recall if they lost their tax exempt status or they integrated the schools or what. It was one or the other, but it went down to the wire and it blew up. And that's where the religious right came from. And you merge that you with the Republican Party. The Tom Hartman program. And what do you get? Absolutely predictably, a racist in the White House who spent his early career denying black people the right to rent property in his dad's apartments. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. You know, even though you and I generally agree on everything, you have challenged some of my preconceptions on things over the years. And that's good. But yes, it is good. But with this transition, and you, and you have challenged some of mine. But anyhow, uh, to to get to your point. Yeah, yeah. Hey, the um, with this transition um, beginning, I am starting to realize that perhaps I was right on one big thing, and it's kind of the Thucydides trap topic. Look, I um, don't like neoliberalism at all, all right? So don't think I'm defending it. But neoconservatism is also a problem. I think Donald Trump's instincts are neoliberal, but he doesn't have the intellect necessary to avoid influence by the neoconservatives, okay? And, and if you remember Elliot Abrams, he described himself as a neoconservative, plus he's a special envoy to the Middle East, the exact same job Donald Rumsfeld had. Well, if you look at this Palestinian, uh, or the Abraham Accords, as they're calling it, the big peace in the Middle East, right? What does it really say? It says, if you find yourself on the wrong end of a gun, you are at the mercy of the person or entity at the right end of a gun. And this all has to do with business. And, and quite frankly, I think if we don't have a Green New Deal, or if we don't have some sort of New Deal, the neoconservatives are going to continue to push this ship of state towards multilateralism and eventually world war in, in order to to you know uh, massage their economic ambitions and look right. case in point now let me it, let, dave if i may just very quickly yeah. boil some definitions down for people who may be listening and going what the hell are these guys talking about um neoconservatives broadly speaking think that most solutions can be uh, most problems can be solved by war and that, you know, if a, if a country isn't behaving well, you kick their ass and, and that'll fix everything. Um, it was neoconservatives who, who brought us into Iraq and Afghanistan. The neoliberals think that most problems can be solved by trade. If you can simply, you know, integrate the economies of multiple countries, those countries won't ever go to war and uh, everything will be wonderful. Both of those philosophies turn out to be largely BS. But is that a reasonable summary for the purposes of this conversation, Dave? We still have one minute left. Sure. And, hey, I believe it's a toxic, um, what did you say the other day? They are symbionts. They're symbionts, okay? I believe it's mm -hmm. a toxic symbiosis, all right? But, yep. so that's what I'm, but what I'm saying is neoconservatism is tending to win. And, and, and let me connect this to the Open Skies Treaty. Look, the Open Skies Treaty is meant to prevent war against nuclear states. So in other words, if the, uh, Russia did a big exercise uh, a couple years ago called ZAPAD, which means West. They warned the United States that the open, they had a no-fly area over their exercise that applied to open skies assets. Okay, right. so, so so I know that's the excuse that Trump, Trump is using to blow up the treaty. Yes, and, and this is the excuse the neocons are using as well. We have to remember how did Trump first describe his animus towards Iran? They shot down a global hawk. No one in America remembers, and, and the reason why is the average Trump voter is like, well, that's just a remote control airplane. 
But Iran should not even knew, they shouldn't have even known it existed. That is Russia and China. And I'm telling you, it is, um, I don't like what I'm seeing. And Joe Biden has a small window of opportunity, you know, if he focuses on the U.S. That's it. Well, we'll all have to keep our eyes on this one. Dave, thank you. Thank you very much. It's always good to hear from you. And let's see here. Holly in Marshall, Missouri. Hey, Holly, what's on your mind today? I now live in rural Missouri, and I used to live in New York and in California, and I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. But the reason I called was to uh, give a shout-out for Janet Yellen, who went to my grade school and my public high school. We come from Brooklyn uh, neighborhood, Bay Ridge, and she was two years younger and went to school with my sister. I remember seeing her playing jump rope. And that's what hmm. public education used to do, because now she's going to be the Secretary of the Treasury. And I'm so proud of Bay Ridge, New York. That's wonderful. I think she did a good job when she ran the Fed. And, uh, and, I'm, and I can't quite say the same for Jerome Powell. Uh, and I think it's going to be real interesting because she knows all the little tricks that Jerome Powell can and is doing and, and you know, kind of where the bodies are buried. And she's now going to be the Treasury Secretary. Um, I'm, I'm getting ready for some sparks to fly. Maybe I'm, you know, uh, I was going to say optimistic, but I'm not sure sparks flying would necessarily be the best thing. Um, maybe I should be careful what I wish for. But, um, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm very encouraged by her being the Treasury Secretary. Yeah. Thank you so much. Rather than the, yeah, rather than the foreclosure king, right? I mean, literally, that's what they called... Um, uh, Steve Mnuchin. They called him the foreclosure king because he, he threw more than 10,000 people in California out of their homes illegally with robo-signed documents. And, and ironically, it was Kamala Harris, who was the attorney general of California, who decided not to prosecute him when she had a chance. Boy, talk about missed opportunities. But anyhow, Holly, thank you. Thank you very much. Dave in Inverness, Florida. Hey, Dave, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hi, Tom. I thought I'd make your day with this proposal. How about Ralph Nader? for attorney general. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. I, hey, I, wait a minute. I, I'm not I, done. I, How about Mike Papantonio for a deputy attorney general? <laughs> yeah, or for AG. I mean, you know, Papantonio knows how to take names and kick ass. He, he, oh, he's that's what I'm good. saying, man. I, I've been thinking about, I, don't you feel like a whole thing's been lifted off your shoulders, though, Tom? I, I feel much better. I really do. Yeah. For four years, I, I've been just yeah. depressed. <laughs> I, I feel like I can breathe again. I'm sleeping yes. better. I, I have largely quit drinking. I am smoking a lot less pot. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm meditating again. Uh, oh, good. I do that all the time. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I just like, I was in this state of, and I didn't even realize it until, until that, you know, the, the third day there when they said, yeah, okay, Biden's got it. And uh, it was like, wow, you know, I, I, I have just been, yeah, uh, hauling this thing around on my shoulders for four years, you know. I was and, depressed uh, about it. You know, I didn't want to admit it, but I really, in depression, just suppressed anger. You know that. But mm -hmm. the point is, Tom, can you imagine the sparks flying if Ralph Nader got in there? Can you imagine? Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. Ralph is one of my absolute favorite people. I was so honored when he wrote the foreword for my most recent book, The Hidden History of the War on Monopolies. And, yeah, I know that. Uh, he's I know had that. me on his podcast. It's a great podcast, The Ralph Nader Hour. Well, really, I listen hey, to Tom, it. Every can't week. you talk to Ralph and see if he can, you know, volunteer? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I doubt he's up for it, but who knows? We should get him on the show. Ken in Lafayette, Colorado. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind? Uh, I'm calling just to, just to, to rant, basically, and your last it. comment there is a, is a good segue on how the hospitals are bursting at the seams with all these COVID cases. So just recently, our governor, Polis, had issued some new, we're at, we're at red level, you know, as far as COVID warnings. And Weld County, which is north and east of me, Bissy said, we are not going to enforce, you know, these new restrictions around COVID. And it's rogue counties, it's rogue officials, like we have here in Weld County, as do Michigan and a lot of us, are the main reason why our hospitals are busting at the seams. It's a, it's an oh, there there are terrain. there are two big things. There, actually, there there are four things that you can point to that epidemiologists have pointed to, and you can say we can prove that a really large part. We don't know what percentage, whether it's thirty percent or fifty percent or ninety percent, but a really large percentage of this massive uh, epidemic across the United States of COVID originated from just a few events. There was the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally where 400,000 people got together, got infected, and then spread back out all across the United States, uh, number one. Uh, number two, there, there has been a series of about 25 or 30 Trump rallies, and every one of those counties where one of these rallies occurred, there was an explosion in COVID cases in the weeks following, and then, of course, they spread out from there. And then uh, number three, you've got a couple of holidays. The 4th of July, two weeks after the 4th of July, we saw a, a burst. You had uh, Memorial Day uh, after that, uh, you know, or Veterans Day rather. Uh, well, Memorial Day too. After each one of these holidays, there's been an explosion. And there will be an explosion after Thanksgiving. We, we, I mean, the airports are running at 60% of capacity right now, which is insane. And, and there was this woman on TV last night who was like, I'm going to visit my parents. They're 80, 88 and 90. And I am being very, very careful as I go through the airport, because when I see them, I'm going to knock on their door. They don't even know I'm coming and I'm going to reach out and hug them both. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This, this, this woman is going to kill her parents. Weld County has, I think it's JBS Meatpacking Company. They're the largest meatpacking, I think, in the state of Colorado. This company had hundreds of COVID cases from their employees, and they did very little, if anything, to, to mitigate the problem. And it's, right. and it's like you say, these, these super spreader events, and it's companies like JBS and, and officials in, in Wilde County and others who are just who are laughing at the face of a worldwide pandemic. And it's just, it's, it's just a disgrace. I'm just... All I did was wanted to rant, and thank you for all you do. Mm. Thank you for keeping reality at top of mind for everyone. And I really appreciate everything. <laughs> I just wanted to rant, basically, and, and tell people that. Oh, you did, Ken. This is no hope. And, and you, yeah, and you did a fine job. And and this is this is the message people need to hear: is that this virus is real. And by the way, you know, uh, you know, Limbaugh and all these guys. Well, you know, you only have a two percent chance of dying. But you may have a 20 or 30 or 40 percent chance of having a stroke or heart, you know, or permanent heart damage or kidney damage or uh, dementia. It turns out to be one of the side effects. One fifth of people who have had symptomatic COVID within 90 days are showing signs of mental illness. I mean, this is a serious disease. Ken, thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. For our book club today, we're reading from Thomas Frank's book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. This is chapter one, titled Servile Disobedience. Social scientists have tried for more than a century to understand how class works. Psychological experiments on the subject, however, are a relatively novel thing. So I was surprised to discover a few years ago that psychologists had published a series of papers on the behavioral aspects of social status and that their findings were almost uniformly unflattering towards society's winners. In one 2009 study in psychological science found that in conversations with strangers, high-status people tend to do more doodling and fidgeting and also to use fewer engagement cues, looking at the other person, laughing, nodding their heads. A 2010 paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that lower-class individuals, in quote, turned out to be better performers on measures of such pro-social virtues as generosity, charity, and helpfulness. A third study found that those of higher status were noticeably worse at assessing the emotions of others or figuring out what facial expressions mean. All of which is to say the rich are different from you and me. They are more rude and less generous. They don't understand, they don't get what others are thinking, and apparently they don't really care. Perhaps this is obvious to you. After all, people don't design toxic debt obligations by calling out what they learned in Sunday school. Still, the research aroused media interest. The Christian Science Monitor's 2010 account of one study ended with this question, quotation from Michael Krauss, then the University of California, San Francisco, who was one of the researchers, quote, being empathic is one of the first steps to helping other people. One of the first things we're really interested in is what can make wealthy people, affluent people, the people with the capacity to give, what can make them empathic? I think I see the urgency of Dr. Krauss's question. After all, we have spent the past several decades doing everything we could to transfer the wealth of the nation into the bank accounts of the affluent to send them victorious, happy, and glorious long to reign over us. Oh, we've cut their taxes, gladly transferring much of the cost of keeping their property safe onto our own shoulders. We've furnished them with special megaphones so that their voices can be heard over the hubbub of the crowd. We've conferred upon them separate and better schools, their very own transportation system, and a full complement of private security guards. We've built an entire culture of courtiers and syncopants to make their every working hour 
and otherworldly delight. We let them construct a system of bonuses and executive compensation on the theory that it would be good for everyone if the people at the top got to take home much, much more than the rest of us. And when it turned out that the theory was wrong, that in the most famous cases, executives chased bonuses not to the shareholders' benefit, but at their expense, why, we promptly bailed them out. We allowed them to step into the Fed's discount window and fill their pockets. We generously transferred their reckless investments to our balance sheet, and we chastised them a little more than a polite, with little more than a polite request that they please not do it again. We've done everything we can to lift them up and exalt them as the new Leviathan. The least they can do in return, one feels, is to show a little empathy. Besides, look what we've done with the old Leviathan, the government. For decades, we've attacked it, redirected it, outsourced it, and filled it with incompetence and cronies. Yes, it still works well enough when we need to blow up some small country. But those branches of it designed to help our Americans of lower socioeconomic status, in quotes, as the scientists would put it, are now bare. We need the rich to be nice, stop doodling, and, and to pay attention and get generous. Now that the government has divested from the empathy business, we need the rich to discover brotherly love and fast. Come to think of it, wasn't that supposed to be the deal in the first place? The arrangement Andrew Carnegie brokered over a century ago when he made his big career move from Steel King to public library baron? The laissez-faire social contract would grant private business a free hand, but in exchange, those who piled up massive wealth were supposed to extend a magnanimous hand to the rest of us. As Carnegie wrote in his famous 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, we don't need socialism to solve our problems. Philanthropy is the true antidote for the temporary inequality distribution of wealth and reconciliation of the rich and poor, quoting Carnegie. Going further, Carnegie argued that the duty of the man of wealth was, quote, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he's called upon to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community, the man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poorer brethren, end quote. That same way of thinking led Carnegie to support the estate tax, of all forms of taxation, this, says the wi- this seems the wisest, he wrote. It, is, it was wise because it would, quote, induce the rich man to attend to the administration of wealth during his life. And if he didn't, then the tax would, re- would return most of his hoardings to the community from which it came, using Carnegie's words. Vestiges of the Carnegie attitude survived to this day. 2009 study of high net worth individuals by Barclays Wealth confirmed that American philanthropists tend to understand their giving in a context in which the state is either absent or irrelevant. And, of course, there are plenty of nice plutocrats who don't fidget or doodle when talking to strangers and who have no problem endowing a ward or a wing in return for a commemorative plaque. The business headlines even occasionally tell of billionaires coming together under the leadership of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to donate their fortunes to worthy causes. But the billionaires with the strongest sense of class solidarity have a very different plan for their disposable income. Activating their lobbyists in Washington, building grassroots movements to march on their behalf, and using their media properties to run experiments on human credulity. Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, what's on your mind today? In this election, had 70 million Republicans voted. And then with Hillary, it was, what, 30 million? And that's terrible. It's just going to keep progressing. And the fact it comes from Fox News, not because they lie or anything. It comes, I watched four shows in a row, screaming and hollering, screaming and hollering. It comes from the brainwashing. They go to that show for that hype. They don't even care if it was, if it was true or not. They don't care about none of that. They want that feeling. 
and they stick to whatever the line is, vote for Trump, vote for Trump or whatever, no matter what truth comes out anywhere else or lies. They don't care nothing about that. That hype is what drives them, okay? And if that doesn't stop, we'll never win an election again. We have to go after yeah. that and stop it. Fairness doctrine or what? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think the fairness doctrine is going to save us, but I do get what you're saying, and I think that we do need to be, the Democrats and progressives need to be messaging better. The fact of the matter is that the Republicans have basically rigged the system. They've rigged the media. They've got this huge right-wing echo chamber. Uh, they have rigged a whole bunch of states so that even though the majority of people in Michigan, in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, um, uh, and other, several other states vote for Democrats, for Congress, for the Senate, for the House, well, not, not so much the Senate, but for Congress and the House, um, and, and, and the governorship, you end up with Democratic governors because it's a statewide office, Democratic secretaries of state, excuse me, <clears throat> but, but the, uh, the representation in the House of Representatives and in their own legislatures is uh, entirely Republican, even though they're minority Republican states. And those structural things are getting worse. They're going to get worse this year with redistricting, sadly, because the Democratic Party did not put a priority, actually didn't have the resources to put a priority on, on uh, capturing some of these state houses. It's terrible. Leslie, thank you for the call. Ronnie in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Hey, Ronnie, what's up? Thanksgiving here. I am so thankful for Stephanie, you, and my local Devil's Radio in Madison, Wisconsin. You guys have me so much more informed than I ever was. Um, uh, but you. I need your help trying to figure out the history of um, how the Democratic and Republican parties basically swapped sides and how they're Elect, how the electors, how the, the people went along with this. Because it was, and, and basically I'm looking for books or something that you could recommend. I, I mean, like, the Republicans freed the slaves, um, but the Democrats fight for people of color today. And right. uh, That's what happened Jensen, in 1964. Civil, I mean, you don't really make an announcement, hey, we're Republicans, so we we, we, we care about keeping the debt down and we want to lower taxes, whereas before we did this, or we're Democrats and we didn't care about uh, people of color before, and now we do. Um, how, how, I, I don't get how- It was a 16, people. it was a 16 year process, Ronnie, and ended with Ronald Reagan becoming president in 1980. But that 16 year process, Kevin Phillips chronicles it pretty well, actually, in, in uh, one of his books. You'd have to pop through, you know, uh, your favorite bookseller. And, uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the title of his most recent book. But Kevin Phillips, who, who was a Republican and no longer is, uh, does a good job of chronicling that time. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? You were talking uh, yesterday about where will the Trump library should be built. And I wanted to, to ask you, pertaining to monuments, I mean, this, this wall that he erected on the border is, is a monument to racism and, and Trump. Do you think well, he's only built three miles of it, Alfredo. He's saying he yeah, built but, 145 miles, but 142 of those miles were actually renovation and reconstruction of existing wall. He only built three, new, three miles of new wall, and, and people are regularly jumping over it. It's fairly easy to climb. <laughs> are they going to tear this down? 
<laughs> I, you know, I don't know. The, the thing that concerns me is that he's, you know, he's going where, where he doesn't have to buy land from property owners because this is, and he's getting a lot of pushback in Texas. And so there's this huge wildlife area that's really important to, to yeah, wildlife yeah. in Mexico and in North America. And they were going to try and build their wall right through the middle of that. And that's where they built the first three miles. And I don't know how badly they've damaged that wildlife area, but if that's where the wall has been built inside that wildlife area, it does need to be ripped up, and that needs to be returned to its natural state, uh, to the extent that it can be. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. This is uh, probably a little lower on the priority list for Joe Biden than, you know, getting the economy back together and saving the lives of a few, you know, million people. But. It's, it's just another statement of the, of the gross racism that permeates the Republican Party. Marjorie in Detroit. Hey, Marjorie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. How you doing? I'm not in uh, Detroit anymore. But anyway, I'm glad I'm off of work to be able to ask you this question. I've been listening mm-hmm. to the, um, the stuff about the L Treaty, the, the, the planes that um, watch the yeah, country. Yeah, the Open Skies like, Treaty. Yes. What did you call it again? Open skies. Yeah, the open sky. Now, we know that it's been said that Trump is now destroying these own weapons, all these planes. My question is, are these planes able to be rebuilt during the four years process of of Biden being in his administration? It's probably going to take five or six years to build these planes. Uh, first of all, the planes that they're destroying are 50 years old. They, they are old, proto, they're pre-747 kind of aircraft. They're four-engine jets um, that were specially designed for the military, specifically for this kind of application, so that they could stay in the air for hours and hours and hours and take pictures of huge areas. So they're going to have to design a new plane, a modern plane, from scratch, then they've got to come up with all the electronic equipment that goes in it from scratch. They've got to, they've got to put out all those pieces for bid. They've got to decide who's going to build it. Um, it's going to be, I, I, I can't imagine that this could be done in less than a couple of so years. I hear you because unless... you're coming to a break. Is that mean yeah. that's the end of that air treaty? That means that's the end of it? Well, that means that it's the end of us and Europe being able to keep track of what Russia is up to or Hungary or Poland if they decide to go rogue. Yeah. And that's a very dangerous thing, Marjorie. Thanks a lot for the call. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and uh, Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kino, what's up? Tom, uh, uh, your program is going to be good for America because I think your idea of delving into these delving into these Senate rules is, to use an old phrase, pregnant with possibility. And uh, yes. for, for one I hopes. want to throw out a phrase for in Georgia, they should start using the phrase that people should vote for the Democratic senators for the health of it. Because the Republicans had Congress the first two years of the Trump administration, and they bellyached about Obamacare, but they did nothing to bring in a new reform system. So I would, right. I'm, you know, the moose herder Republican who wants reform in the party, and I'm strongly for Biden. And I want the people in Georgia that are listening to start saying, you know, vote for the Democratic uh, senators for the health of it, and give the Democrats two years, just like the Republicans failed in their two years with uh, with. 
Trump. So what do you, so good luck on your looking into those Senate rules, Tom. That, like I say, that's going to bring about good results for the vice president and the Biden administration. Thank you, Kino. And uh, yes, spot on for the health of it. Uh, it's a great uh, play on words. I, I love it. Thank you very much for the call and, and good luck. Greg in Detroit. Hey, Greg, you're on the air. What's up? What do you think of uh, Biden uh, trying to get the fairness doctrine, enforcing the fairness doctrine, um, and and possibly uh, then working on the Telecommunications Act uh, to try to reverse these big networks of right-wing radios and and these networks of owning multiple radio stations in in the same market where they're just flooded with all this right-wing kind of propaganda? And then, then second, what do you think of Joe Biden having a monthly town hall, say on the first of every month, as a way to communicate. Because like Bernie used to say, well, Obama was elected, but then he kind of, he said, okay, thank you, I have it from here. And he went and, and did his agenda, which was fine, and he was working hard for us. But you didn't hear about like Mitch McConnell holding back all his uh, work that he was trying to get done. And, and if Joe Biden right. communicated every month, to the American people, they would get to know him, trust him. And yeah, I think once a week, doing what he's I, doing. Think, I think he should do a weekly uh, fireside chat kind of thing. Somebody called and suggested that to Congress in Pocan last week, and I thought it was a great idea, and I, I, I totally agree. Franklin Roosevelt did that um, through much of the Great Depression and all of World War II. And I, I think, you know, we got... We got too much from Trump. You know, we're getting 30 tweets a day. We got not enough from Obama. We go we go entire months without hearing from him. I think once a week is is reasonable. And I would like to get back to a government where I don't wake up every morning and start compulsively hitting the news feeds to see what fresh hell the president has has rolled out. You know, it's just. Uh, but he needs to but, have it at the same time every week or every month. So that people yeah, just I know, agree. OK, on the first or on Friday, he's going to come out so they can look forward to it. Yeah. So they so. Right, and hopefully it it, it gets high enough ratings that all the networks will want to carry it too. I mean, you know, yes. And with regard to the with regard to the FCC, I think that they need to uh, bring back Title II. They need to bring back net neutrality, and they also need to look at antitrust rules, ownership rules, the old ownership rules that Bill Clinton blew up with the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Those need to be brought back. Uh, Some of them are going to have to be brought back by Congress. Some can probably be done by executive order. We'll see. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.